the National Archives podcast series, Time Railways and the Mobilization for War in 1914, presented by Bruno Derrick. In three years' time, it's the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. So anticipating that three years early, uh, um, I'd like to talk to you about a thing which was quite central to the start of the war itself was the railways or mobilization, railway mobilization across Germany and all that that entailed. There's a, a brief timeline, I'm sure most people are fairly familiar with what happened in 1914. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand went to uh, Sarajevo with his wife and he was assassinated there by a young um, Bosnian Serb nationalist called Gavrilo Princip, who, in fact, there were two assassination attempts. The first one failed, and the Archduke went to a hospital to visit the people who had been injured in the first attack. And as he was leaving, Princip was sitting in a cafe and happened to see him going by, and then saw his chance and ran up and, uh, and shot the Archduke and his wife. And the... Uh, the Archduke's last words to his wife were, it is nothing, but he was wrong there. But the, um, and basically what happened afterwards that the uh, a whole series of events were set in motion, basically the European allies and powers playing off one another. Different alliances and entente were set in motion and wars declared on August 4th, or uh, with finally the final declaration on August 5th when Austria-Hungary declared war on Russia. And that's what happened. So it happened over a very short period of time. The First World War itself, as I said, started on the first, 4th of August 1914, and it was the biggest war the world had ever seen. In part, it was a conflict that can be seen as a culmination of the Industrial Age, a war which allowed for the mass production of weapons, leading to conflict on, on, on an unprecedented scale. Railways were central to the campaign as it unfolded, taking soldiers to the front and back, and ferrying weapons and hardware from factories to their points of distribution. Railways were, in addition, at the core of troop mobilisation in 1914, as across Europe, nations prepared for a war which, for which they had long planned, but the time of which was rushed, having been sparked off by the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on 28th of June. The historian AJP Taylor went so far as to argue that the actual outbreak of war was consequent upon adherence to pre-existing railway timetables, the existence of which was central to, for example, the German Schlieffen Plan. He argued all the European powers had built up vast armies of conscripts. The plans for mobilising these millions rested on railways, and railway companies cannot be improvised. Once started, the wagons and carriages must roll remorselessly and inevitably to their predestined goal. In essence, Taylor suggested that so central were the railways and railway timetables, both to mobilisation and to the first encounters with enemy forces, that a plan once set in motion could not be stopped, or the whole process would unravel, and an opportunity would be lost which might not repeat itself. It might also be argued that war in 1914 was consequent not so much upon railway timetables, as upon the close and conflicting alliances that united the nations of Europe with one another, but also united them against one another, with the railways the catalyst and not the 
casus belli or the cause of war. But the central importance of railways and of associated ideas of quick movement of troops and units lay well lay years before the First World War broke out in 1914. And the war itself can be seen as lying partly in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871 between a Prussian state representing the soon-to-unified Germany and France under Emperor Napoleon III. Germany won this war convincingly and captured the two French provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, thus sowing the seeds for a retributive French stance thereafter. But the Germans essentially won the war on the railways before the armies had had, had an opportunity to confront one another. With perfect organisation, the Prussians, led by Helmut von Moltke, were able to amass 462,000 soldiers on the French frontier to face a French army of only 270,000. Although the French army was not required to leave France and it was only operational in order to defend the motherland, it managed to lose some 100,000 stragglers through poor planning and poor administration. And because their railway infrastructure did not begin to match the German railway infrastructure, Germany mobilised her forces by train. The value of trains in wartime had been noticed by observers of the American Civil War even earlier than the Franco-Prussian War, and that was between 1861 and 1865. And in wartime, it was noticed that railways could help to keep armies in the field for as long as these armies could be fed and supplied. The importance which has been re-emphasised as a consequence of the growing approximation between France and Britain before the Entente Cordiale of 1904. The growth of railways across Europe in the 40 years before 1914, with new lines being built and with capacities, in, capacities increased and with virtual every ma- virtually every major town and city being connected by railway lines, helped to convince the, the powers, Germany in particular, that the anticipated forthcoming European war would be a war based on movement and rapid attack. Hence the Schlieffen Plan. German preparations for war are outlined in what's called the German White Book, anticipating a war against France in the West and Russia in the East. So the Germans, as a consequence of the Schlieffen Plan, um, were convinced that the war was going to be a war of movement and rapid attack. There is also a contemporary development in weapons of technology, such as the machine gun, which tended to favour defence rather than attack. Nevertheless, in anticipation of the war, European track mileage tripled between 1870 and 1914 to 180,000 miles, a growth particularly marked in Germany and Russia. Martin Crevel, the historian, wrote, at the time of the Franco-Prussian War, it was record that a single line could carry eight trains a day, a double 112, whereas on the eve of the First World War, the figures were 40 and 60 respectively. The French built more railways to link the towns and cities of a country that was still predominantly rural, but they built them mainly so that the army, formerly strong in 1914, including reservists, could be quickly mobilised and deployed. So the, the emphasis, the German emphasis before 1914 was on building a, a railway network to meet the demands of the Schlieffen Plan, which anticipated an attack on the France in the West, defeating the French fairly quickly before remobilising and sending the forces eastwards to confront the Russians. And in a sense, from their point of view, it was a logical plan, but the, the problem with it, they were perhaps rather inflexible about it. And certainly it began to unravel fairly quickly after 1914, but they anticipated being able to do a repeat of 1870, surrounding Paris, bombarding it, forcing a French surrender, and then turning their, t- their attack east. Uh, looking at the immediate tensions before the war, the railways 
played a very large part in developing European tension before 1914. Growing military and economic prowess led to a grab for colonies at the end of the 19th century. Germany and France grabbed huge chunks of Africa, as did smaller countries such as uh, Belgium and Italy. The Germans in particular became enthusiastic railway builders in their colonies, but the British, who had been longer established as a colonial power, were as enthusiastic. Before the Entente Cordiale of 1904, Anglo-French rivalry frequently revealed itself, and war between Britain and France seemed a real possibility. For example, the French felt, felt threatened by the proposed Cape to Cairo railway, the dream of Cecil Rhodes, and the effect this would have on their African, col African colonies. With improving Anglo-French relations, the British turned their attention to Germany and viewed with grave suspicion the, suspicion the proposed Berlin-Baghdad railway, which, with an anticipated line extending to Basra in the south of what was then called Mesopotamia, was seen to be a direct threat to British hegemony and, and being very close to India, which was seen as a British sphere of influence. Now, the, uh, the railway itself, of course, was never built, but that's what the anticipated route was. And whoever prepared that map, which was done in 1916, actually did refer to German sort of territorial control via the railways, failing German freedom of the sea. So the, um, and then up in the top corner, they showed how the, uh, partly through the railways, the Germans were able to extend their territorial empire, if you like, in Europe itself. So you see the parts of Belgium they've captured in the West and, and Russia and Poland in the East. The line was nowhere near completion in 1914, so it was never completed, but German economic investment in the Ottoman Empire and overt British hostility to what the Germans were doing over there helped to cement German-Turkish relations, which had consequences for the British later on when you see events such as Gallipoli. One historian has argued railways having become so important it is soon merely sufficient for one nation to announce the, prelim the preliminary plans for a new railway to engender suspicion, hostility and jealousy in other powers. Professor Morris Jastroff, writing while the First World War was still in progress, claimed, with perhaps a degree of hyperbole, no step apart from the concession to build the railway, ever taken by any European power anywhere, has caused so much trouble, given rise to so many complications, and has been such a constant menace to the peace of the world. The Baghdad Rail Railway will be found to be the largest single contributing factor in bringing on the war, because through it, more than any other cause, the mutual distrust between European powers has been nurtured. A railway, which is a medium of exchange or merchandise and of ideas, ordinarily fulfills the functions of binding nations together. In this instance, has been the cause of primarily pulling them apart. Germany itself, in 1914, some 40 years after her victory over the French in 1870, and unified as a single country since 1871, was unified under the auspices of Prussia, but regional differences and traditions and sometimes resentments were perpetuated within Germany itself. Thus, Bismarck's desire to nationalise the German railway network at the end of the 19th century to make it more readily available to the general staff in a time of crisis were in part thwarted. But a process of nationalisation or semi-nationalisation did start in the 1890s as the state started to buy up smaller railway lines, smaller private railway lines. And as they did so, the military assessed the strategic potential of the lines and rolling stock the state had acquired. In time, the German state was able to invest in railway companies across Germany, including the south. But their main focus was on the north and northwest, where Germany bordered Belgium and France, 
and where the envisaged war would start. The Kaiser was an an enthusiast for battleships, as they could, he believed, either threaten the supremacy of the Royal Navy or topple the Royal Navy from its hegemony in the forthcoming Great War at sea. The German army, more presciently, saw the approaching struggle as a largely land-fought war, and seeing the vital strategic role of railways demanded and got new lines and new carriages and new stations and new bridges and vast new junctions linking convergent lines. Nervous French and Belgian observers noted the constructions of sidings with elongated platforms in steep little villages that just happened to be on the German side of the border with France and Belgium. So they built new stations with very, very long platforms, only just to discard troops prior to crossing the frontier. The German army in 1914, although untried militarily, save for odd, mili- odd colonial campaigns, was as ready as it could be for war. Her large standing conscript army stood at more than two million, including reservists, and mobilising troops could be fed into an excellent train network, which gathered units together at pre-arranged points of assembly to proceed to the front. Prussia had most of the publicly owned railways in Germany, but the state operated railways across the whole country alongside private companies, and even owned the Alsace-Lorraine railways, which the French were keen to seize, along with the territories through which the railways ran. Dennis Bishop and W.E.K. Davis in Railways and War Before 1918, which was published in 1972, said Germany was without doubt the most thoroughly prepared and experienced. She had a large and expert military railway department. The civilian military personnel, especially the Prussians, were organised largely, largely on military lines and their railways were easily converted to military use. Now in France, the, the French were well of well aware of the threat posed by Germany and noticing German preparations in the year up to 1914 concluded, rightly as it turned out, that a German attack on France would be preceded by an attack on neutral Belgium. The Schlieffen Plan, which was first prepared in 1904, initially anticipated an attack on Holland as well, but eventually that was ruled out. French foreign policy and military considerations were less nuanced than those pursued by the Germans and in, a, in essence her strategy was centred around recapturing the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine. French railways, like their equivalents in Britain, were privately owned. And before 1914, six major companies were responsible for moving goods and people around France. And troops as well, should the circumstances demand this, after an agreement had been reached in 1903 between the French railways and the French government. The French had learnt the lessons from the debacle of 1870 to 1871, or thought they had, and they had a railway regiment like the Germans. And the French military put press for the construction of railway lines which headed to the German frontier. And the French had their version of the Schlieffen Plan called Plan 17, a number arrived at after the modification of previous plans. But Plan 17 was mostly concerned with the effective deployment of French units to the front line, wherever such a front line should emerge. And the German plan fused considerations concerning transport and railways into overall military objectives. Over in Russia, which was the, the second um, uh, aspect of the Schieffen Plan, because they, they anticipated a longer war with Russia once France and Belgium had been fairly quickly defeated, the, um, the Russians operated a different gauge, which is normally five foot, and so there's no gauge compliance between east and west. Russian railway lines covered thousands of kilometres extending into Siberia, and they played a massive part in helping the Russians to mobilise far more quickly than the Germans had anticipated, with this forcing the second part of the Schieffen Plan. In fact, the Germans hoped to 
take on the um, Russians and perhaps defeat them for all possible before they'd even properly mobilised. They thought mobilisation would take that long. The Germans had a decisive victory over the Russians at Tannenberg in August 1914, but the army defeated by the Germans was a larger force than had been anticipated and was mobilised and deployed fairly effectively. The Germans had to requisition 60 trains to transport captured Russian equipment back into Germany. In Belgium, the, the railways are mostly state-owned, with lines totalling 4,369 kilometres, which ran 4,288 locomotives and eight, over 8,000 carriages, more than 3,000 brake vans, and 87,000 good vehicles. French lines also operated on Belgian soil. Germany, aware that the demands of the Schlieffen Plan violated Belgian neutrality, offered the Belgians the option of allowing the Germans to pass through Belgium unblessed. And the Germans even offered to compensate Belgium for any damage caused, paying for the train tickets as well, while at the same time and using all the existing Belgian facilities. Not surprisingly, this offer was rejected by Belgium. Perhaps the Germans guessed that this would happen, but they could not have anticipated the extent to which Belgian railway workers would sabotage, sabotage their own railway network to thwart and delay the German advance. That slide there refers to a Foreign Office directive saying that the Germans were mining roads, railways and bridges of all kinds and even fields over which assault troops were likely to pass. Well, of course, the Belgians were doing exactly the same thing, although they're doing it on, on their own soil. And the idea was then to forward this on to the, um, the Russian government to make them aware of what the Germans were going to do once they got onto Russian soil. Now, over in Britain, the, the, there was a very, very extensive railway network um, in 1914. Not probably as efficient as a German railway system, but a pretty good one nonetheless. And prior to the railway grouping of 1922, dozens of different railway companies competed with one another. British railways were fairly well prepared to meet what's happened in 1914, and it had been anticipated to an extent. F.A. Mackenzie, who wrote in British Railways and the War, which was published in 1917, and therefore should be seen as part in terms of propaganda, wrote, British Railways have played a great and splendid part in the war, working with depleted staffs under war conditions. They have enabled England to move millions of men and millions of tons of munitions with the utmost rapidity and with an entire absence of confusion. The British state, as in France and Germany, acquired by royal proclamation the use of the railways during wartime as and when the railways were needed to pursue the war effort. The British did not anticipate fighting a war on their own soil, but did anticipate the use of railways as a massive facilitator for troops in the forthcoming European war. Southampton and New Haven were commonly used as ports of departure for the front but other south coast towns were used as well. Train companies, particularly those based in the south of England, such as the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway, revised timetables and schedules accordingly. And the Royal Engineers had their own long-established railway branch by 1914. So the, all the big railway companies were printing their timetables as normal throughout 1914. And if you had a bit of money, you could go on a continental holiday. Um, but by August, September, you start seeing these notes on there saying that holiday plans might be affected by the war, and uh, you should take this into account, and, uh, <laughs> and perhaps plan a winter holiday rather than a summer holiday. But in, in general, they, things did continue uh, as, as normal, in fact. And the, um, uh, 
l later on, I think, I think I mentioned this on the show in one of the clips later on, the, um, the actually, they did actually say on one occasion, the holidays continent should, should, should just be delayed until Christmas time or January New Year because they, you know, probably will be over by Christmas time. That was commonly felt at the start of the war. And that's the war, the war diary of the 109th Company Royal Engineers. That's at the end of 1914. So they, they were actively involved in, at that stage, holding the German advance. And um, rail, railway officials would have been, British officials would have been, railway officers would have acted as liaison with French railways, with French civilians, with French, civili with, with French railway stations as well, liaison troops bivouacking and uh, moving troops back and forth to the front. So that, that was done fairly efficiently. And then that's the war dive for number one railway company, um, uh, Longmore Camp, which, gives, which basically records their mobilisation from the start of the war and their journey down to... Um, uh, Le Havre, to Southampton and then to Le Havre, and it records what they're doing as the war unfolded. The British Railways effectively were under the control of the Railway Executive Committee. And this was set up during the Second World War as well. But in, in the First World War, perhaps anticipating the coming war, the railway system was set up and it assumed responsibility for existing decisions affecting railways in wartime. British troops started to arrive in France within days of the outbreak of war. The fact that French railways were able to move some 115,000 BEF troops to a front line that was narrow and porous in the early days of the conflict shows that the French railways were in a greater sense of state of readiness than had been previously assumed, especially by the Germans. The British appointed officers, French speaking whenever possible, to, super, to supervise the movement and deployment of incoming BEF troops with Amiens acting as the chief junction. The War of Movement proved short-lived. Early encounters in August and September 1914 have the flavour of bygone conflicts, with cavalry able to advance at speed over land untested by modern warfare. But by the end of 1914, at the start of 1915, with the successful Anglo-French thwarting of the German advance, which had undermined the first objective of Schlieffen, the war settled down to trench-based attrition and a semi-permanent front was established which ran from Belgium to the Swiss frontier. Thereafter, the railways in Britain were responsible for ferrying troops and supplies to the front and taking casualties back home. And there we are. That's a notice from the Railway Clearing House on behalf of the Executive Committee of the Railway Clearing House, 1914. Again, travel plans are likely to be curtailed or interrupted. And any responsibility will not be accepted for any delay, damage or loss which may arise through such curtailment or interruption. So, but they weren't actually telling people to cancel their holidays or their trips, but of course the railways were essentially placed under the control, under the military, or to the extent that the military needed them once hostilities started. The effective takeover of the railway of the railways, as far as the war effort was concerned, by the Royal Executive Committee, did not mean that railways became a uniquely military concern after 1914. Railways would still need to transport people and goods and services. Um, as in France, the consequences of any diminution in this, with food shortages, for example, was feared. So they're always very aware of the fact that although you could, you had to supply the war effort with guns and munitions and supplies. You, you, you could, couldn't, the, the hinterland of the country still needs to be fed and have supplies sent to them. So that's, 
maintained, although at a lesser level. As J.H. Thomas, the MP, wrote in The Red Light on the Railways in 1921, the Railway Executive Committee governed the railways, this is in Britain, throughout the war right up to the moment the Ministry of Transport dissolved it. This committee had a free hand in making all arrangements for the conducting of the railways, and it is a very far-fetched argument to suggest that the government had any voice at all in the working of the various lines as business undertakings, all the government wanted during that period was, troops, was that troops should be mobilised and moved expeditiously and that munitions should be carried with all speed from the workshops in London and the big provincial towns to the docks. Nothing else matters. Now, I mean, what he is saying then, he was actually anticipating the grouping together of the, major, of the, grouping together of the railway companies in 1922, which was a sort of semi-nationalisation which actually happened after the Second World War. I mean, he was calling for that then because political control was um, seen as being paramount in the war and later. Um, but the, at the start of the war, the Royal Executive Committee had a rather over-optimistic view of things. Um, a statement issued on August 5th, in view of the probable great decrease in traffic, it is anticipated that there will be no difficulty in dealing with rolling stock. In fact, railway traffic increased by some 50% during the war, as did problems associated with bottlenecks in bag and supply. So there was no decrease, in, there was a vast increase in railway traffic as a consequence of the war. So the, um, the, railway, the different railway companies had to react to the developing situation. And they, and they, they responded pretty well to that. The, the, the Cambrian Railway Company, on Friday 1st of August, uh, 2,000 officers and men, 76 horses, 40 carts, transport wagons, 200 tonnes of luggage were moved from the coast to Clan Idlois, there to await further orders. The 9,000 reservists went from training camps at Aberystwyth and Port Maddock, returning to a number of different destinations in both north, from different destinations in North and South Wales, moving to a central assembly point. The West Lancashires assem assembled in Lancashire on 33 LNWR trains. The Northumberland Territorials left North Wales, where they've been training for the North East in 19 trains, and so forth across the country. So they, they mobilised back to their normal counties of origin, or counties where they're based, before then heading south for Southampton. And they, well, they went back to the bases to await further orders, and further orders meant you'll be heading down to Southampton, and then you'll be off to France. And Belgium. Very soon afterwards, though, they started, casualties started coming back, and the, all the different railway companies were getting involved in this as well. And the Great Western Railway um, produced its own ambulance trains. But because they didn't know obviously what was going to happen, so some of these trains had sort of 20 beds for them, but 20 beds for the number of wounded who were coming back wasn't really, wouldn't have, wouldn't have filled many trains, but the, all the different companies were laying on these trains, and the facilities, certainly at the start of the war, were, were fairly good. And here's the, the Southern Command in England to be, with their different mobilisation train timetables and how they how they mobilise and bivouac and meet in certain places prior to going across to the continent. The British Railway Clearinghouse, RCH, managed the allocation of revenue collected by the various pre-grouping railway companies. These companies all operated their own railway lines but gained revenue from fares charged for passengers and goods travelling over the lines of more than one company. So the Railway Clearinghouse had quite an important organisational role in sorting out mobilisation in 1914. According to Philip Bagwell and the Railway Clearinghouse in the British Economy 1842 to 1922, clearinghouse, staff clearinghouse staffing levels were maintained throughout 
because the importance of central coordination of the railways, but quite a lot of clearinghouse staff actually did go and join the armed services and a number of them were killed as well. So the railway clearinghouse, if you like, acted as a sort of central coordinator for the railway mobilisation. The British, the British Expeditionary Force mobilised, as I say, very quickly after the declaration of war, troops sent to the front. But the railway magazine, for the later months of 1914, took a rather relaxed view of the developments, perhaps because the BEF was so small compared with the armies of France and Belgium. It was about six divisions, 200,000 men. And so the, hence the, comment, the Kaiser's comments, which are perhaps have advised that it was a contemptibly small little army. Um, it was certainly small compared to the armies of France and, on, and Germany. But the actual site, it was not a very large army. Um, the, it was recorded in the Royal Magazine, so far there have been no special changes to the Chronicle as regards the railway situation under war conditions. Indeed, the situation is so nearly normal that were it not for other factors, one could hardly realise that the United Kingdom is actually concerned in the greatest war in the world's history. But going back to what I was saying earlier on, the Royal Magazine warned its readers who are planning a continental holiday not to pack their bags as an excursion and tourist facilities, usually by ordinary trains, are to be discontinued until the end of November. Perhaps we are starting after then. However, they did suggest holidays in Scotland and Ireland were still an option. By the end of the year, though, the Royal Magazine was proudly noticing that some 20,000 railway workers had joined the colours and that railways were helping the war effort in all sorts of ways. The Great Eastern Railway, for example, operated 870 military trains and approximately 20,000 vehicles were in use for military purposes between August and September 1914. And, reflecting the growing hostility to all things German, the magazine noted that the London and Northwestern 460 Experiment Class passenger engine Germanic is now running with the name Belgic, affixed above, affixed above the old plate names on the driving wheel splashers. The old Germanic name, the old name Germanic, appearing with two red lines drawn across it. So it was renamed, and they crossed out the old name, but left the old name there, crossed out. But then they went on rather oddly to say this is not being done in any spirit of vindictiveness. Well, sort of says it might have been. Lieutenant Colonel Forbes of the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway, as reported, again the Royal Magazine, was, with the authority of the Royal Executive Committee, recruiting from the staff and employees of the various railway companies troops to assist in restoring and maintaining railway communications for the armies in the Western Campaign. So the, so the railways are actually uh, recruiting personnel to drive as military train drivers over in France and Belgium. And that, when all the different units have been mobilised, gone back to their camps, reassembled, been sent south, got to Southampton in the early days of August, went across to um, Le Havre. This is the material that was actually, this is what they actually were able to get all the way down to Southampton. 334 trains, 2,825 officers, 66,000 other ranks, 481 horses, 21,000 riding horses, 1,751 fur gun vehicles, 695 two-wheel gun vehicles, 97 motorcycles, 1,271 ordinary bicycles, and 2,550 tonnes of baggage and stores. So that was quite a, an, an achievement in those days. And uh, 
given what was available to them and over such a short period of time. And if you look in the various railway magazines at the time, they do actually say that there were no casualties at all. So they actually were, <laughs> there were no incidents. It, it, it all went very smoothly. I mean, casualties started afterwards, but the actual process of mobilisation um, went very smoothly. And I think possibly because although the, the timing was, wasn't actually anticipated, the fact that a war was on, on the cars had been anticipated for quite a number of years, and that was one reason why the Railway Executive Committee had been set up. The, the railway magazines were very popular at the time, and as was Railway Travel in general, I think, and there's magazines aimed at various different uh, readers and pe people who enjoyed travelling this country or travelling on the continent, and they had a different market and talked about different things, but the Railway Gazette was one of the... That's the Railway Review. The Railway Gazette was... Uh, marked the outbreak of war by declaring, after carefully considering the matter, and again, they're saying, without any hostility to anything German, in consequence of the war, it will not be right to allow German firms to continue to use its advertising pages, and that all advertisements for German firms and their agents are banned until further notice. Um, the, con the Gazette continues to, present, to be printed in much the same way, which much the same stories, appointments, collisions and accidents, articles about railways in Europe and throughout the empire. But by September, long articles with a military theme began to appear more regularly. The Midland Railway Ambulance train was dwelt upon in the September 1918 issue, with side entrances and central corridors that had been arranged in the ward for the easy manipulation of the War Department's standard stretchers. This following on from article in the previous issue on the ambulance trains of the Great Western Railway, which we showed earlier on. The Railway Review, um, what we've got up, uh, that's an edition for August 1914, late August 1914, a weekly newspaper for railwaymen adopted a more popular touch as a crisis involved it. And at the start of the war, at least, a far from bellicose approach. Um, and in fact, if you read the Railway Review, you can see cartoons and poems which actually are rather poking fun at people who are being uh, very bellicose and causing for war and, and, and busy sending troops off to the front. They're, so they actually adopted a more cautious approach, which people often... It wasn't... The outbreak of war wasn't universally welcomed in 1914 by any means. The, but by later on in the year, once, as I said, the German advances had slowed down and perhaps the nature of the war was becoming more apparent... Um, war of attrition warfare, war of huge casualties. The, the review concluded an editorial on the, um, on the 18th of September. As far as our railwaymen are concerned, we have to take a fresh hold upon our affairs. Our familiar outlook for the moment has vanished. We do not fairly realise what the next step will be. Uncertainty meets us on every hand. The only safe advice is to meet the duties which the eternal now brings us. And so we may emerge under a brighter sun because we have met them. And, they, and so they entered into the spirit of things within a few weeks. Uh, and again, that's another illustration there in um, the Royal View showing the, the layout of ambulance trains 
and how they accommodate all the wounded and dying soldiers coming back from the front. So that was just a brief introduction to how the different railway companies across Europe prepared for war. As I say, my, my reading is that the war is, was certainly anticipated from uh, the start of the 20th century and quite possibly war with Germany. German war plans anticipated a war with France in the west and Russia in the east. And because of the European alliance system, that once that started to kick in, the widespread European conflict was very likely. The, it could be argued by some people that the Germans had little alternative other than to pursue their war once their preoccupation with the Schlieffen Plan, which was basically a railway mobilisation plan, was set in stone, and they had no follow-up plan or no alternative to, to, to proceed with other than that. Of course, an argument could be made that they should have made a separate peace treaty with France, which, but that was never likely given that the French were very keen to reoccupy Alsace-Lorraine after 1870. So war was on the cards, and railways were the mechanism for which war was going to be delivered. And that's what eventually happened in 1914 because of a conference of circumstances and because technology at the time allowed this uh, sort of war to take place and take place very quickly. And so say, the German units got to the invaded France and Belgium very quickly and... And the rest, and although the actual, the impetus broke down very quickly, certainly the early impetus of the war was railway base. This event was recorded live on the 16th of June 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.